So welcome to the seminar, uh, Curating Stories. And hello, yes, my name is Anders Kanell. I'll be moderating tonight. And for those of you who don't know me, I'll tell you that um, I'm the art editor for a magazine here in town called Nöjesguiden. And I've been working a lot with education. And then at Moderna Museet, that's what I've been doing. That's briefly about me. And then I will present the members of the panel, starting from my right is Mr. Bo Nilsson who used to be a curator at Moderna Museet, and after that he moved on to be the director of Roseum. Uh, after that, Charlottenborg in uh, Copenhagen and Lili Valksen. Now he's involved again as the artistic head of something called Artepelag, which is run by Baby Björn, right? To my right here is Richard Julin, who is the chief curator of Magazine 3. Also the deputy director is also involved in film form here in town, which is, I think, the only platform for experimental film in Stockholm, more or less, or sort of the major. And also you are an affiliate teacher at Stockholm University. I'm just going to check this. Oh, in, the, in this program, right? In the curating program. Anything you would like to add to this very brief? Well, if you said that there uh, were the only platform film form, I, would s I think some people would argue with that. There yeah. are a lot of people who... Luckily, I'm, I'm very, very happy to say that a lot of people work with the moving image as art in yep. different capacities here in Stockholm. So, And to my left, Magdalena Malm, uh, who is the director and founder of Mobile Art Production, which has been going on now for five years, is it? Yes. Before that, you were at Jaspis, and you're also a freelance curator. You've curated shows for Moderna Museet, among others. Also give frequent lectures at Konstfak, the Department of Art History at Universitetet, uh, Uppsala University and so on. And also you write books and articles. And yes, last but not least, Liv Stoltz, who is a freelance curator. You're, you're now working at Konstfak within Experience Design. You've also uh, spearheaded uh, CFF, the Center for Photography here in Stockholm, and you've worked a lot with photography and you've curated shows, gallery shows at Melican Gallery, for instance, here in Stockholm before that. And you also write quite a bit. Like for Freeze magazine and and others. Um, this was my very brief introduction. Was this all right? Would you like to add anything it's to this? It's great. I have also been. You hear me quite a lot, don't yes. you? <laughs> <laughs> but we like that. I've been a former student. Yes, of this program of the curator program. program. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now I've got a short question. You can only answer yes or no to this for all the panel members. Do you consider yourself storytellers? Both? Both and. Rickard? In my professional capacity, I suppose, as a curator, I... Let's say yes in this panel. Yes. Magdalena? Yes. And Lee? Yes, I am. So, let me start with you in this capacity. And we're sitting in front of your exhibition, or the Andrea Sittel exhibition. And which one of you is telling a story in there, would you say? Uh, obviously, this is uh, an exhibition about a place called A to Z West in Southern California where Andrea lives. It's about her. She does tell a story. I would say that I've... Um, it, it's different in every exhibition, but in the best cases for me as a curator, I'm there with her and I help her tell the story. Uh, and I would say that she tells the story. Uh, which that's the short answer. Yeah, I think in this case uh, th that would be an answer, and, and um, th there are a lot of stories being told. You know, it's not one story. When you say that you help her, in what way did you help her? 
in many ways. I mean, she's quite capable of, of creating the actual uh, objects and the art herself. But um, I mean, the, tra the the basics in curating, of course, uh, in, in, in transports and insurances and all these things. I mean, we also made a book together. Uh, her involvement in the book was that we uh, had a long discussion. I helped her a lot uh, and ourselves with all the rest together with, I mean, uh, uh, people on staff here. I mean, we were a group, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, and when it comes to the actual storytelling, if, 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 if we should call it storytelling, I suppose I helped her as a partner in a dialogue around how we should present this in this uh, location. Uh, Andrea very specifically um, works towards a goal, in a, uh, to put it simply in her life, and that is that people should come to her to see her art. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, ideally she would like for everyone to come out to A to Z West, mm -hmm. and she would not have to travel at all. Mm -hmm. She could just spend her life out there. That's not really how, how reality works uh, for her. And uh, she calls her galleries distribution points, and she sees museums as, as, as distributors of, of knowledge of, of different sorts. And in, in her case, the knowledge is around her art and uh, the way she lives her life. I, I want to add to that also that she doesn't do this to tell others to do as she does. But I, I was there to have a discussion with her to see how all of those ideas, a lot of quite complex ideas and a long you know, life with art, uh, she's done this for, for 20 to 25 years, what would be the west best way if we decide to talk about A to Z West to show that here at this point in time? And that discussion resulted in a certain type of scenario, which is a word I, I mostly use when I talk about exhibitions rather than storytelling, but I, I, you know, they're different words. Like scenarios, like scenery. No, a scenario, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, what comes to mind now is when I make an exhibition and, and it's in these spaces, I, I walk these spaces mm -hmm. like uh, 1,285 times prior to the show and I just try to think of how the space is perceived and that's a scenario. Mm -hmm. And I never think that anyone is going to see what I see, but if you think a lot about that, it usually tends to make, you know, I humbly say, for a really good exhibition. But when you say, when you use the word scenario, this is a word that I think of in, in the field of drama, and that's how they think. And drama, we know, are one of the <laughs> forerunners when it comes to storytelling. So that would, to me, imply that it is a story going, going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only problem I have, and I, I want to stop, I want to hear what the other people have yes. to say, but, but um, I don't have a problem. Storytelling is a, is, is a, it's a nice word. I like how it sounds and everything, but... It's also, uh, yeah, it's kind of limiting somehow to me. Now, Magdalena, you gave a resounding yes <laughs> to think of what you do as storytelling, uh, whereas Richard is, has a different, slightly different ang angle on it. So what I would like to know is that in your work, do you feel that your presence or how you deal with the artwork and the artist, well, does that increase or decrease the story that you're surrounding it with? Does that increase or decrease the value of the, of the piece? I would like to start to say that I said yes, because you said I had two options. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I could have said no. <laughs> Good point. Um, 
I think, um, I mean, my background is actually in literature and also in, in literature concerning drama. So for me, when you talk about storytelling, that's a very certain specific genre of literature. I would think of, uh, if you think of a novel, of different composition models, for instance. The Alexandria Quartet, for instance, four different perspectives telling the same narrative or not a linear narrative, a totally different way of building narrative. And I think that's maybe the problematic thing that we think storytelling is a kind of linear narrative, which I think is quite far from actually what we do in, in art situations. So that's maybe a bit of the problem. I think for me, it's very different. I think, of course, in a theme show, I'm much more of a storyteller than I am when I work with one artist. So when I work with one artist, it's very much about the work and the kind of inherent logic of that work and how can we extend that. But I think, uh, in a way, because we don't work, or at MAP, we don't work with the set space. So we depart in the artwork and we think everything around it. It's not staged because that's kind of on the surface, but it's kind of trying to expand the notion of the artwork into everything surrounding it. In the environment we choose, in the part of the city we choose, in how people move there, in how people get to know about it. So it's kind of trying to expand that artwork or the emotion or, or the feeling or the thematic of that artwork as much as possible into everything that surrounds it. So it's kind of staging a situation, if you like. And that, I guess, is this kind of storytelling, if you have this kind of wider notion of storytelling. And then if you build a thematic exhibition, depending on the theme, and again, if you have this freedom of if you imagine all the genres of literature and modern literature, then I think um, I, as a curator, of course, is much more uh, forming not only the narrative, but how people move between, like Rika described, how will the audience move between the works from one to the next, between the buildings, uh, find their way, how will they interact on the way, and so on. So then, uh, of course, in a thematic show, uh, the presence, my presence, is much stronger. Boo Nilsson. You answered yes and no. <laughs> uh, would you care to elaborate? I mean, what do you think about your role as a curator? Well, I would definitely say that um, this is a complicated question. I don't really understand what storytelling is about. And um, I've tried to uh, figure out what, uh, why storytelling has become such a word that you use now with exhibitions and of course you didn't talk about storytelling before and of course that has to do with the situation with with modern art and that modern art was iconic and there was no really story all the history of the written modernism uh, was about non-illusionism so all of the artists wanted to focus on the physical facts and not the illusion not the story told but then, of course, then again, there has come up so many stories from earlier modernism, like secret sources that are there sometimes. But the artists say no to that kind of, of literacy in the works of art. And um, so I start wondering, uh, why is it that we now talk about storytelling? And I think to tend that it has to do with, first of all, that uh, literature has a real strong uh, impact in our society today. So, I mean, from our point of view, we look at literature, and literature means more in cultural terms than the art today. That's my way of looking at it, and that's one thing. And the other thing is that there is a new audience 
that don't really understand what they're seeing. So we have to be more educational when we do exhibitions at this point than the old audience used to be. I mean, the audience is larger, but it's also uh, there is a, another kind of knowledge or less kind of knowledge to, uh, with the audience today. So I think that the, uh, the legacy of Duchamp in that sense, that um, you uh, invite the audience to say this or that about the work, relating to themselves, relating to the, your own ideas, the, the what's, what Duchamp called the open work of art, uh, an open interpretation, an open situation, looking at the work of art. We don't really have that today because of the storytelling. It's, it's much more defined today. Here's, here's just a thought. Does it have to do with authenticity, with a sense of authenticity from the spectators, from the viewers, that we are fed so many stories <laughs> and we're fed and we're through in digital age, we're more and more alienated so that when we are being told a story, for instance, about someone like Picasso, maybe, or some, because those stories have always been around. Whenever there's been, to, you know, you see that, oh, he made this, this and that, and, but, oh, did you know he was actually at the time, at this time, he was the lover, he had this lover, and, you know, those stories have always been around, and this is what people, what sticks in people's minds more than, you know, <laughs> the artwork in itself. And I'm wondering if it has to do with the notion of authenticity. Leave. You do a lot of writing, and, and I'm curious, when you do writing, do you think you need to tell the good story? Do you th think in those terms? Uh, no. No. No, <laughs> I don't. But it's, it's true what Bo just said, that it's um, also part of the educational program you have, that you communicate regarding your exhibition, and that is also a political uh, demand. Uh, and we also have to discuss and interpret what we have done. Some way the curatorial, um, well, the curator has to explain themselves. They occupy public space. They should be able to speak about their exhibitions. I have al always uh, written a lot about regarding my exhibitions that I've made and wrote a lot of curator statements where I kind of guided the audience into my mind uh, and the process of an exhibition. But of course, the curator is a parachute over an exhibition. But you can tell very personal stories and embed them in the exhibitions. And it's kind of a secret messages that you place in a bottle and then you send away. Could you maybe give us an example of that? Where you did that? That's kind of private. Oh, <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's those really private little messages. Uh, no, but I do think that the exhibitions you make uh, mirror uh, in one way or the other yourself. And in that way, you are a part of communicating something. And it should be quite important. In that sense, it doesn't really have to do with authenticity today. But it's uh, a private or a public important uh, message you're sending out mm -hmm. and hopefully someone is receiving it. I had a comment to what Bo was saying, mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. It's because literature is it's important, but I think actually the impact of the moving image that we're surrounded by, film, 
any kind of moving image, TV, uh, YouTube, whatever, is even maybe stronger um, in, sense, in that sense. But I think, yes, it's the educational part, but I think it's also the development of the art itself, not the curatorial or the educational part. But as art expanded in all these other fields into film, for instance, we had a durational work. When it, uh, I mean, there are even artists working with stories like Good TV here in Sweden, for instance. So when art expands, it doesn't really stay within that traditional role anymore. And that means that in certain cases, not all the time, the artworks themselves are narrative in opposition to the minimalist concept or the earlier idea of, of modernist art. Not minimalist, but modernist. Boom. Definitely, you're right. I mean, there has been, at this point, very many artists that has worked with the storytelling. But what you can see today is that fewer and fewer artists are really into storytelling. You can see that a lot of more is going to back to an iconic way of looking at their works. And um, I think it's, it's interesting because, um, I don't know if you've read Michel Ulbeck's latest book called The Map and the Landscape which is really interested in, in this sense, because this, this artist who the novel is about, his name is Jed Martin, he is living in Paris, and he asked the author of the novel to write a preface for his exhibition. The way that Ulbeck is trying to, to write something about an artist that he doesn't know about is interested in, in the terms, because this is what really happens these days. I mean, a lot of the focus, Ulbeck says, what is happening in art is are actually things that are relating to media or what media writes about the art. And the media has a really strong sense to have a story to tell. And if there is not a story to tell, the media are not so keen on writing on the art itself. So what he, he's doing is a heavy criticism on the media that the media wants the story. That's why there is so many stories in art. And of course, he's exaggerating. But still, there is a small part of it that is true, of course. Rika. I actually just, just want to bring up an example, which is a very, very interesting uh, to us within these walls and hopefully to a, a very large audience. In the, the spring, we're currently preparing an exhibition with Ivey that uh, opens uh, in February. and. Um, the story that is going on, I mean, that I think everyone in the room here is, is uh, highly aware of what has happened in this artist's life, uh, at least in the last year. Some might know even more. And all these stories that have been told through media, I mean, he's uh, now on the number one and the number one spot in art reviews, latest list of the most powerful, etc. And everyone knows this. What is clear is that the stories around this person's life is of huge interest to media, whereas the actual art that he's making has much, much less of an interest to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I don't want to value it right here, but I mean, in relation to media, to uh, current art, and uh, also the fact that this is a Chinese artist, uh, it's very, very interesting in relation to this, to this theme. So I, uh, that would be a path that one could discuss. I don't know. I think we're going to do it at length. But is this an, an ethical problem? Do you feel that when what you were talking about, Bo, when I mean, that when media takes over, it sort of decreases the value and it ruins it? Is there an inherent value that is beyond that? 
really a sign of the times that, that uh, media, that the journalists and so forth are more interested to know what Ivey Bay had for breakfast than what his latest artwork was about. But on the other hand, those journalists would normally never write about art. So I think it becomes problematic when those journalists that would normally write about art write about his breakfast. Mm. Then we have a problem. But at war, if artists adapt their practice because they know what's going to get media attention. So if it's affecting the way or if it's affecting the way we produce exhibitions, then we have a problem. But I can't really see that it's a problem that a lot of people know about our way because I think some of them will actually discover his art mm -hmm. and they would never have done otherwise. I'm really trying to refrain from putting yeah. any value on this. No, I in did. Relation <laughs> <to> <laughs> uh, in relation to storytelling, stories around this artist much more than his actual art, is it's understandable and it, it's just... I, I just wanted to bring it up as an example in relation to media. But I don't. I, I also think that it does happen. That it does affect. So, so I, I'm not. I'm. am just saying that it's. It depends on what you look at. If it's a problem or not. Boo, would you? Well, well, I say definitely that you have the the perfect example with Aveve, because when you look at his exhibitions and especially the one that now is at Louisiana Museum, it's not really an exhibition. It's part of fragments of an exhibition and that he hasn't been curating it at all. He has n no part of it. So they are actually putting together a few parts that doesn't really belong together, and you see examples of something, and there is no story, uh, because they, they've also said, we don't want to make a political statement by uh, showing Ai Weiwei, which is so stupid, so it's incredible. And this is what happens at this point, where you start focusing on an artist, but not his work. So the work is not the, the point anymore, but the artist. And, and then we go back a lot in art history, back to the expressionist, to say the history, the biography, and so on, are important. It seems like it's an old-fashioned way of looking at art. Do you agree, Deeb? Yes, I do agree. Uh, media has a huge impact and uh, of course it's... Uh, and the focus on biography, is that a problem? Well, in some cases, uh, this is, a, as you said, this is a perfect example of this. Of course, one should, uh, what I think is to deepen the knowledge about the actual work and the production. But also, as you say, there is a broadened attention to the work and it can be discovered. Do you think you should work as a curator? Should you go work with it or against it? You can try to use it. That's exactly what I was ah, going to say. Clever. <laughs> In relation to media, I just wanted to bring which could be another path. I, d I don't know. D d that'll be right. up to you. But uh, uh, initially, we, we, we spoke uh, very, very briefly about the uh, moving image as art. Yes. And, uh, uh, if you look at storytelling and uh, I, I, this thought that has struck me many times before and the reason that I'm very involved in, in for instance, this film form and the, I find the history of experimental cinema and video art to be of huge interest today. If you talk about storytelling, there's of course a language, there are words, there's a syntax and so forth. And uh, the, 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 the predominant language uh, globally today is the moving image. So I think that's also uh, in just an interesting path to that one could talk about, you know, I mean, in relation to yep. storytelling. And I'm partly perplexed at times at how little people 
still have embraced the, the history of video art. I mean, it dates back to 1968, and I'm not going to make a history lesson about it, but it's old. Mm -hmm. The moving image in itself, how long that, again, how, how that goes back. It is a history that uh, should be as known as, I mean, we, we just mentioned how literature is, mm -hmm. uh, and it's great that people read a lot of books and so forth, but it's kind of crazy when you open the papers. It's all about books. Why isn't it all about films? I mean, that's really the language that everyone knows and reads. And more importantly, why isn't there any film show on television? Perhaps, <laughs> but, but uh, wha what I'm saying is that we all have, the, uh, we, ha we have such an exquisite reading of the moving image today. It's so complex and we all know it. And it's a global language. It doesn't matter whether we speak to Ai Weiwei or whoever, what language we use in this type. We all know this highly complex cutting and, and we understand I mean, it's so subtle and it's such a I mean for humans amazing language but it's very very rarely touched upon but it's it's the big language uh, that where stories are told mm -hmm. if you take a step back from it I'm amazed I mean every child should know that to me I mean I'm happily naive in this case if you understand what I mean why does not everyone know the story of the moving image as art I'm curious, I, I agree with you, if, if it is so prevalent. Do you think along those lines, do you think, when you plan an exhibition, like a movie, is that, do you see what I'm saying? That, that you sort of imagine that the person uh, entering into it is the camera, and it's that point of view, and they are experiencing the show like a film. I just want to point out that's not what I meant. No, 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 it's, it's <laughs> not yeah, what yeah, you meant. You were yeah, talking okay. about the... Uh, so the no, just no, to, be, to be... Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, no, yeah, this was just a, yeah. a take on that. Okay, okay. No, I would answer no. no. I don't see it as an image. I see it more in a musical terms and in literature terms. Mm -hmm. uh, I have also studied literature and I've never studied art uh, and theatre, but literature is my main subject, mm -hmm. you can say. And I go back often to the old Greek ancient classical uh, tragedy to create uh, a narrative arc within my mind. But of course, it's according to the space. And it has a really interesting structure. And I think we should go, go back to the storytelling uh, history of uh, the exposition and the, the background and how the story uh, accelerate and all different kind of features and of course when the the climax and the catharsis and all this happens and also I often think about the anagnosis the epiphany and the insight uh, when the turning point in an exhibition so I, I often think about these terms I've never had the chance actually to talk about it till now do you think there are a lot of people who think like that I mean in your or do you I have no idea and I never discussed this actually. You can say it's, uh, as you say, a chronological story. I use often metaphors uh, as well. It depends totally on what kind of exhibition it is and what kind of space it is. It really depends. Yes. I, I would like to connect the film track and the, and the mm. literature track because I think about, as I said, about kind of, if you think about modernist or later literature, what happened with I think when narrative started to be even more present in contemporary art was when we had the video projections because film became so so strong in the end of the 90s. And for me, stepping into an installation by Elisa Attila or Anne-Sophie 
is also related to literature because I have the different perspective of the different people, but spatially. So when I move around the space, my body will determine the perspective. You might have the stream of consciousness uh, as in Proust. So it's the moving image which is durational, but when it's possible technically to project it large on the wall and, and create a surrounding, like, I mean, think about um, Dagetkin. You walk into, I mean, he creates, he builds a city and you step inside that city and life is going on everywhere around you. And I mean, it was amazing the first time you could actually step into that. And I think it expanded what film could be because it involved the body. We are editors suddenly in a different sense. But for me, that expanded to literature in a way because we have something which literature has tested actually quite a long time ago, which is then kind of transformed into the physical space with film. So basically this has to do, it boils down to your backgrounds and your, your, I mean, and your love of literature, whereas your background is design, isn't it? Do you think this plays into it? How you think, of you said that you walk through the space and you sort of feel the space, but you don't necessarily translate it into or relate it to literature the way... I don't, it doesn't have to do with my background as a designer, no. but I, I, I can use that a lot uh, in uh, my work, but that's on other ways, perhaps, so... Um, yeah, I think to me, uh, um, Magdalena now speaking about Electric City, I, I, and this is something that became clear to me actually not too long ago, and that is, I think, very much uh, in choreographic terms rather than, than putting thinking back in, uh, to literature. Uh, actually, I, I made a show with um, Danish artist Tal Air here about two years ago, and um, he's known as a painter, but we, we spoke a lot about uh, sculpture. And I realized a sentence which might sound perhaps even silly, but I realized that I like painting that has choreographic qualities. Mm. And that really took me a long time to, <laughs> to understand. And uh, it's a really nice epiphany. And uh, also it really is a good key for me in, in how to make exhibitions. Just, you know, how you can perceive space and art in space in choreographic terms. And it, it, it can be, I said, scenario earlier and, and, and walking around space but it's not about creating a dance, but it's all the possibilities that you have in, in every moment, basically. Mm. I was thinking of bringing in interpretation into this discussion when it comes to storytelling, because um, the interpretational part is really important when you work with an artist. I mean, you can make up a story uh, which is not there by going too far so you have to consider the artist's intentions about his works. And I, I worked on a show a couple of years back when I was director at the Roseum with Mike Kelly. It was a very obvious thing because Mike, uh, he was the first California artist that showed in New York at the Whitney Museum, a large retrospective. And um, he showed his works in a way that the critics went into a lot of content-oriented interpretation of his works. And, and basically, all of the critics wrote about that uh, he was abused as a child. And uh, there is no history facts that that was the case, but all of them wrote about that. And ever since, Mike was determined to make shows that would look and be impossible to interpret as something 
of that kind of children's abuse because he felt that his work was larger, had, had visions that went far beyond this personal history of his. And um, this is what I, I uh, would like to hear you say something about the way interpretation goes into the way when you're a curator in curating art. And to me, Mike said, well, you have one mission with this upcoming show that we made together at the Roseum, and that is that people shouldn't be able to interpret as something that had to do with child's abuse. So he was sort of, the whole history of his work was so oriented towards that interpretation that he had to fight against it. And, and he made a, new, a totally new show with the same works. He told me that that is your mission to be able to see that it's not interpreted that way. Did it work? I mean, what do you I think? I saw the show. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have no idea. I mean, I think he was he was very happy with the show. I think it worked. Yes. This is a strange constellation of what interpretation and storytelling can do to a work of art. I think I think you're really close to an important point there because I think I think and I think that's why we all hesitate when using the term storytelling because mm -hmm. storytelling is usually telling one story and that's why I'm trying to talk about these other ways of telling stories which are multiple interpretations and I think of course it's the key actually responsibility of a curator not to limit the reading of a work to for instance a biographical situation or something like that and I think you're absolutely right and it also says a lot about how how you have to know as much about as possible uh, about both the work, the artist and the interpretations to try to open the readings, as many readings as possible to leave the work uh, and the audience to do the reading and not to do it for them. I think it's really, really uh, a crucial point and why I think that's why, why we have a bit of a problem with this term, actually exactly what you're talking about. So I thought we'd sort of end the panel discussion soon and open up for questions from the audience. But I have one last question, which is this. It's about decryption or encryption of artworks. Should you decrypt uh, through the story? And, we're, and it seems we're talking about two different stories. One is the story that is going on in the, you know, outside the exhibition space and the one story that's going on inside the exhibitions or within the parameters of the exhibition. Now, within those, do you think it's important to decrypt for the audience through a story? Do you think of your work like that? That if I first show this, and it might open them up to then experiencing this and then this and then. You're all dead <laughs> silent. <Yes. laughs> uh, but I, I think you're no. saying two things because right. uh, it's not, I wouldn't say it's storytelling. Uh, I would say it's thinking about the time, the order of time mm. in which people see works. And I think one of the important issues is, of course, not to tell people, oh, this piece and this piece, they have a connection, but to make them discover it themselves. So you have to think about in which order you place the works to enable that experience for the viewer to do it themselves without kind of pushing it in their, you know, <laughs> in their mouth. Um, so I wouldn't call it storytelling. I would call it like... Um, the how you structure it, how you build it, but uh, kind of uh, empathizing or, or imagining mm -hmm. that you're the viewer walking inside. Yeah. I, I, I constantly get examples from, from uh, people I've worked with and, and experiences. And one 
example that I hope adds something to this is uh, when I worked with Sofia Hultian a few years ago. And uh, that was actually what the show, what we decided the show was going to be about, how we place things in b next to each other and just really talk about that. And the, the very simple and uh, very fun uh, experiment we did was that I invited Sofia to, to work with me on my curatorial process and she invited me into her artistic process. So she created a new work for an exhibition here, which was called Betwixt Sofia Heltian between Mona Thum and um, Jonathan Monk and a lot of other people. And uh, so we, we started the process together and we talked about which works to exhibit and we decided on a few works from our collection. And then we talked about this, you know, why do we choose these works? How are we gonna place them in the space? And just on a really basic level. And then she, in my view, very, very, with a lot of humor and a lot of intelligence, she made a work about this discussion somehow, which to make a long story short, ended up being her buying four old doors in Berlin where she lives and really trying to get to know these doors and how they related to each other when they stood next to each other. And then she placed them somewhere else and then from her memory of these and the different juxtapositions of these doors, what happened between them, she created another object out of that memory, which was true memories and false, whatever had happened. And this object then became something that kind of looked like a door, but it was one object that came from four others and the histories that these doors had experienced. And that's a beautiful story. Well, she's a good artist. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of, because isn't that it? I mean, soon audience you will be let in. But isn't that it? A lot of art, it consists of these things that you're telling me, these stories that seems to be that people in the know, perhaps the people present in this room, are sort of uh, privy to, but not the general public. Because a lot of the time, since I've worked a lot with the general public, don't have a clue about this. And they walk in and they see doors and they don't get it. And it's just, it's just a door. You know, I understand that you can go further with that. I do understand that, that you don't actually need, but I find that that story, it, it's, the, it's the sort of hidden stories that uh, perhaps what you're talking about, Liv, but you did it very subconsciously. Uh, a short comment to that is, I don't know whether it's, you know, the, it was the right way, but at that time, what we decided to do was to tell that story on a piece of paper. Ah. If you were here, you could read it. That paper can be, uh, you know, we told the story and then, that's a constant. I mean, how do you, how much do you tell? How wha where do you do it? Do you give people pieces of paper? Do you tattoo it on their forehead? Do you make a, that would a, be nice. a, an Should audio guide? <laughs> do you, what, what do you do? I mean, uh, podcast. I mean, this is going to become a podcast, for instance. So if you like this, you can send it uh, to somebody later. I mean, the, that's a constant, of course, in, in, in our work. I mean, you, that story. Yeah, how do you relay it? Yeah. Do you tell it? And if you do, how do you tell it? And does it make the piece better or, well, I mean, because that's the constant fear, it seems to be, that you're somehow hurting art by telling the story. Well, it's some sometimes it can frame the artwork too much and that is uh, something that you should never do. Uh, an artwork will always transcend the story if you have one story. If it's a thematical exhibition, then you can have an overall uh, theme, maybe. But within, there are different voices, the different narratives. 
some will contradict each other and maybe and that is the beauty with an with artworks that they actually they are free for the viewer to interpret and bo i wonder is it really possible to guide the viewer in in that sense no i don't think <laughs> 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 because interpretations are free and uh, i think about uh, a french musicologist he's called jean jacques nitier and he said something beautiful in musical terms and trying to understand the narrative in music and he said narratives are not in the music it's in the plot that is created in the viewer's mind or in the listener's mind but this is something you can of course correspond to in exhibitions but then it's viewers of course so it's always free good point so with that point i'm now Turning towards the audience, don't be shy. Please, I know you've got questions. Thank you. My name is Jeska Skrubbe. Uh, I think it was Magdalena who was talking about uh, staging situations. Um, and that made me think of uh, sort of the different institutional contexts where you show uh, artworks. And I was wondering how, uh, is it possible to tell a story or tell every story in every situation and how much does the place or the institutional context where you show artworks um, sort of affect the stories that can be told? I think it affects it quite a bit. For instance, since I'm usually outside, I will take an example that there are artists that actually really, really need the art space. Uh, if you think about Elmgen Dragset, if you think about, I once had a conversation many years ago when I started MAP with Tino Segal, and he was like, I moved from performance to contemporary art because I wanted to have the boundaries of contemporary art. That's what, what my work is about. Why would I move outside of the art gallery? So uh, that's a story that can be told in the art context. And there I think it's possible to move other stories inside of the gallery, but I think that sometimes it makes them less accessible and more complicated. Uh, so we did this piece with Annick Eriksson, the man in the park, in, in the park at Galitsparken uh, at Södermalm. And um, the park was the frame of the work. Who uses public space? So people are afraid of walking in the park at night, uh, and so on and so on and so on. The knowledge that everybody has about that park is enormous. It's a, it's a huge knowledge and they use that to understand the work. So we didn't need to, and we didn't need any text to describe the work. If we would have moved it into an art space, we would have needed a long text describing what happens in this park, the history, malls being built everywhere in Stockholm and so on and so on. So in the art space we would have needed a long text. In the park, the park was the context, it communicated the work without any kind of writing. I think yes, I don't think it's impossible but it's harder, some things are harder in some places and definitely also some artists really really need the institutional framework because that's the material in their work. Uh, so just picking up on that, uh, you say that uh, some artists really needs the frames of an institution. But as a curator, you always cooperate pretty close to the artist. So where do you draw the line of uh, cooperating too much in terms of creating the art piece in itself? Because some artists, I guess, really needs to curate too, while some wants to curate their own shows. So is there any experience uh, you could uh, give an example of? Maybe considering the Andrea Sittel 
uh, exhibition, Richard Yulin. I've uh, worked with a lot of artists um, commissioning new works. Uh, that's really what, to a large extent, defines what uh, we do here at Magazine 3. Of course, it can be a delicate balance, in a sense, and I think it's something that one as a curator might, in the best of worlds, get better at through the years. Uh, I think, frankly, it takes some courage to uh, curate in that sense, to really be there for the artists, not overstep boundaries, and to have the diplomatic abilities that are needed uh, when new work is being created and have a certain sensibility, I think, toward the, uh, the process that a person might be involved in. And this is so, so personal and so different from, from time to time. I, in my work, find it incredibly important to not have any artistic ambition in relation to the work that is being produced. I take pride in being the curator in the process. And um, if a person, so to speak, doesn't want to be curated, which is putting it very, very simply, I don't think that's possible because you wouldn't have an exhibition if there wasn't a curator in an institution like this. I mean, the works wouldn't be here <laughs> for a start. But um, obviously I've worked, uh, like I, uh, Tom Friedman is a good example. Uh, some of you uh, probably saw the show that happened here that I curated. Tom is amazing. He's a very good curator. He knows exactly, exactly what he wants. We didn't have to. Th in fact, I so desperately wanted to get involved in some kind of discussion with him around space uh, that we made a little corner where he basically said, okay, Richard, let's curate this, this, uh, this corner. <laughs> and uh, that's it, you know, and uh, it was a really good corner. I mean, it's a piece of toilet paper, this Neanderthal guy, and then some letters on a poster. And it was we had we could we talked for a day about that that corner and then he knew uh, that I was happy, <laughs> you know. Uh, the rest, I mean, frankly, he I mean he knew where th where stuff was going, you know. I had a lot to do anyway. Yeah, yeah that's kind of uh, some kind of answer, right? <laughs> uh, my name's Emma Rose. We heard some really interesting things about the relationships that start to happen between curator and the artist and how this dialogue forms into maybe one story uh, that comes from the artist or to do with what you want to tell as a curator. I was just wondering what, if you could explain the process or explain how you interpret more than one artist in a group exhibition where you have lots of stories starting to overlap that each have their own thread or their own importance and how you deal with that complexity. Well, it's really difficult, <laughs> 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 I can just say. It depends how big it is and how many is involved. But let's say a student show, 10 or 12, up to 15 and maybe more, then it's extremely hard uh, to curate such a show and very challenging. But it has to do much about space, that everyone gets their little space they can actually be in. But of course everyone is, is mixed and they should be mixed, but more or less good, hopefully good. Do you have an example, maybe, where you worked with several... I mean, I, I know you've got well, a lot of experience doing that. Well, I curated a, a show uh, together with four other, other um, curators at Lillevald's uh, Vår Salon, and we had 100 artists <laughs> <laughs> involved. But then the artists weren't supposed to be there. They couldn't be there. 
because then it would have been too complicated. So it can also be relieving for the curator not to have the artist present. Isn't it the same problem when you have multiple curators? Yes, I think that it's very different depending. I mean, in this case, it's you don't have an idea from the beginning. You have a, a crowd of people that you or works that you have to. But I think at least when I work with an exhibition, I kind of think about the theme, and at the same time, I think about artists working with that theme. So that's how the theme comes about from actual artworks. And then I think I actually built the exhibition when I have the and when I built the idea and in the dialogue with the artists, trying to explain the idea I have and asking them, is this relevant to your work? Uh, and kind of in that uh, process of talking to the artist, kind of thinking about what different aspects of this theme do the different artists work with? How will it be for the audience? It's kind of a very organic process, I think, where the exhibition is growing with all the discussions I have with the artists, even with the artists who are not included at the end, maybe, because it's kind of shaping how is it going to be structured. Or, for instance, when we did the Moderna exhibition uh, 2006 with me and John Peter Nilsson, we had, I think, 50 artists, uh, and we had a general theme, and then we kind of found areas. So we built the exhibition in a way that you started on Sergei's story, like where, where there was a lot of noise out right out in society. You move through translation, um, interpretation, translation, and you come into escapism, where, where the outside world is too imposing, so you kind of go into your own fantasy world. And I guess, in a way, that's a narrative in how we built the exhibition, but it was kind of related to, I mean, a lot of the artists were, the, the basic theme was how artists work with a personal experience, but it's made more general, it's about society somehow, but it's that connecting point. So in the process of understanding which works, we saw kind of three different fields um, underneath that, and that kind of made a narrative going from the outside world through translation into a, a kind of more fantasy world, if you like. So for me, at least, it's a very organic process. I don't know. Um, so I, I think the, the process is, uh, is based on, on the fact that if you pick an artist and you feel that there is not substantial in his work what the show is on and you see a lot of sh these shows today like um, several shows that are on at this point uh, there is a theme and the theme is a, such a thin line between the artists because the artists are not funded strongly in that problem and uh, it makes it very uh, weak and, and very uh, hard to grasp so um, I, I might as well say the show, for instance, uh, Helvetet at Lillevax, is, is hard to me to understand because the artists come from different uh, perspectives, from different points of view, from different historic parts. I, I don't really see how they connect because the, the pick of the artist is so arbitrarily. So I, I think that you should focus on that specific point before you, you say, this could fit in, this could fit in, you have to do research in the whole body of the artist's work. So you feel that it's been sort of, they've been forced together? Yes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's huge different to say, I have this theme and I have to find artists. I think, I, I don't think I've ever done a show like that. I think, I think about artist works and then that will give me the theme. When I have enough artists that kind of deal with one theme in an interesting way, that makes an exhibition. So it's, it's not the other way around. It's like an yeah. organic, so to start, yeah. Yeah. 
there is a practice in, in a think tank in London, and uh, it's called Chatham House. And uh, prior to Rika telling us that this will be a podcast, I thought this is a wonderful opportunity because it's a closed environment here and, and we know each other <laughs> and no one will say anything that is um, not appropriate. But I will nevertheless ask you this question. There is a current uh, tremendous exhibition in Stockholm at Moderna Museet which I think uh, approaches a massive amount of different angles that you have discussed curating today. It has to do with storytelling, it has to do with uh, uh, the luxury or the uh, opposite of luxury by basically uh, working with artists that are not alive. Uh, you all talk about the relationship with the artists, you talk about the dialogue, you talk about meeting them and discussing with them, but of course in the future you might actually end up have to work with artists that are not around anymore. So uh, including the excellent moderator, I would like to hear individually from you, uh, not a, a massive uh, explanation, how do you feel about this uh, show with uh, Turner, Monet and, and Tomley? Uh, in terms of spatial installation, in terms of selection, in terms of the theme, in terms of, of the narrative with these texts on the walls and so on. And, and is this... Uh, good example of, of with a certain element of narrative introducing uh, three master of their kind into uh, a general public. You can decline if you don't want to answer it, but I think it would be interesting because I, I really think that this is a, is a show which is a little bit like an Ai Weiwei. It's kind of, it's kind of sunk into the masterfully uh, skill of bringing all these uh, works to Stockholm uh, but is it a good show? I would say that um, I have some problems with that show, yes. First of all, I mean, uh, part of the story of the show is that this wasn't intended from the start to have these three artists br and bring them together. I mean, the, the idea was uh, to have another artist instead of Cy Twombly's work. Whether that is true or not, it's a part of the story of the show. I think that... Um, that makes me a bit hesitant that uh, the artist in the show can be changed from one artist to another. That makes me really wonder uh, how, how solid is the idea for the show. Then I would say that um, the way that the, uh, the different artists are put together, I mean, in the sense that what makes them uh, sort of focus on the same issues, I don't really understand. I don't really, I, I cannot really try to give a story of what the show is about. Definitely I can see that there are traits of romanticism. I can see that there are traits of, of looking at language in a certain way. I can see, I mean, different things. But none of the things really makes an essence of what the three artists are all working with. So. I think that the show didn't start from the point where you say, hey, this is the, the essence of Monet's work, this is the essence of, of Turner's work and, and Cy Twombly's work. Though, there are some interesting things happening when you put these works together. But um, I would say the storytelling of the show is weak. Turner alone would have been magnificent. That is my comment. 
Uh, well, I think it's conceived as a blockbuster, and uh, I think they probably seem to be very successful in that sense. It's not a type of exhibition that appeals to me. Uh, not even. I mean, the the idea of constructing a blockbuster and to see how you can go about doing that is to me not interesting uh, from an artistic point of view at all. And I think it's when you go through the show, it becomes clear that that was the primary. To me, that seems to be, uh, I mean, if they have a list of priorities around that show, that's probably the, the most important thing. And as such, I think they probably succeeded, but uh, w in, in relation to, because they will have a lot of visitors. I like them individually a lot. I don't get that much out of the storytelling aspect of it. When I saw the exhibition, I I looked mostly, in fact, at, at the sort of spatial configurations of the walls, how they had decided to pick certain colors for certain walls, and uh, to say something positive uh, I mean, <laughs> about the exhibition, I, I, I thought some walls were, you know, I mean, this, the room came alive quite nicely. I think that Marge did a really good job, actually. <laughs> you know, the architects, I mean, not, I mean, I'm not, I'm saying that, in, I mean it. I think they got a task and I think they solved it quite well. And they're good artists, uh, you know. Um, I agree with Richard. It has definitely, most definitely been conceived as a blockbuster. On the other hand, it's what the Department of Culture wants, since they seem to be measuring it by the numbers. You know, the content is measured by how many people go see it, and that equals good. So by those standards, this show is fantastic, you know. I would say that there is no storytelling going on in there at all. I think it's just very loosely, slightly poetic words, put on, on walls, so it's, it's, you know, in one part it says atmosphere, and you know, we could talk about atmosphere. Those are unnecessary, I think. That And also, actually, Bo, did you know that it was not, Turner was not intended to be in it from the start, like six years ago? So it, it grew and it, they changed the, the, the more contemporary one. Having said that, since I see the audience in there, they love it. I mean, they absolutely love it because they've already got the story and they've got the story from the media, I think, about these artists and what they are and what they represent. I think they are three, in their own respective ways, fantastic, sensational artists. I'm, I might have put it all together slightly differently, but it works for a very wide audience. I think the sad thing about this show is that we won't be able to see a Cite Fombly show or a Turner show or a, uh, a Monet show in its own right because I don't think we will have one of those. And on that sad note... <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any more questions? If you ask the same question about the Champs exhibition... I won't get into perhaps a, such a deep analysis, but I was uh, personally prefer that show largely to uh, the one we just discussed. In actually, in relation to Moderna Messiat, it was such a time warp to... Uh, step into the old Duchamp room of Moderna Messiat. I'm stating the obvious, I suppose, for most of you, but I actually met uh, two people in the show who, I suppose, maybe they were too young not to have it. They had not experienced. They didn't know that this was a, a copy of the room that I had spent so much time in. And actually, uh, you know, I, I think a space, this Duchamp room from Moderna Messiat, the copy of it is, I'm exaggerating, but it's, it's partly due to that room that I think I'm working as a curator today uh, is, uh, and that artist. 
So to me, it was I was blown away by that exhibition. I thought it was partly amazing. Then there were parts that I thought was really crap. Uh, you know, when you stepped up there, and there was some this really ugly hanging of stuff. But it probably had <laughs> had had its uh, reason. And also, I I I really liked Duchamp so much that to see the model that Ulf Linde had made for his wife of étant donné uh, was I I spent so much time around that. I, I to me personally was wonderful. I really really liked that show. Viv? Well, I uh, prefer that show largely as well. And uh, it's an intriguing installation. Uh, I think the curator has, uh, curators have worked a lot with, they know their material and they know the space and they have created interesting solutions in the space. You travel through time, you travel through different uh, layers of experiences through the exhibitions. I have a feeling that this exhibition is more about Ulf Linde than Duchamp. And uh, I would have liked to have seen a Duchamp show. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that it's uh, focusing on a research project, a personal research project that's been made in private and it's been made for such a long time. It's massive work. But the main core that this, uh, the golden means that this is um, going through uh, all different kinds of work is taking away the, the glory from <laughs> Duchamp a little bit. Was it that simple? No, it can't be that simple. It's so much more. Duchamp is so much more. And I'm leaving the exhibition with a really excited feeling. But when I come home, I'm a little bit troubled. Oh, I rest my case. You rest your case. My name is Dan Klintso, and I ask you, you told the Cinderella story and how it looked like uh, when the work between the curators and artists is done work and how is work, how is the look like uh, all concept is not working. Could you tell us this side of the... When the cooperation between yeah, the artists cooperation is not working or you have difficulty to put together thinking yourself. I have only had um, difficulties once and it was with uh, a younger student and it was a graduation uh, exhibition so it was a lot of nerves involved. But I had a solution for his work, a different um, installation that he had in mind and I wanted to discuss this option and to try it out in space and he refused. And then I got a little bit angry. <laughs> and I said, I really would like to have an artistic discussion at least. And because that is why I do what I do and that is what I enjoy the most. So that is the only time it hasn't, hasn't worked out. And how did it pan out? What happened? We did it my way. <laughs> <laughs> have you had Leib's experience, Rika, also, where it sort of crashed? I think the comment I will give, I, it's, I, I think it's a fun question on a subject that might not be so fun when it happens. But I mean, the, the short comment, I suppose, is that obviously every collaboration in, in includes the moments where things really don't work. Uh, I think that's part of the, 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 the profession or the situation. Uh, one, one, one thing that I tend to do in those cases is that I, I use time. It's a bit what you spoke about, I think, Leave is, is when it really is a big 
something that you can't agree on, it's it's uh, then we can discuss whether if we have another, for instance, 24 hours, that we just put it on a side and both think about it for, for instance, 24 hours. Mostly when you meet 24 hours later, you, you don't see the problem, okay. mostly. Uh, sometimes you need to gather some facts <laughs> during those 24 hours and then you can talk in a new way. Sometimes it's the artist that comes with facts because it's really an artistic decision and you can go around this problem uh, in a different way and then we find a solution. I, I, I tend to use time then. And it's good if you have time because that's something that you, you know, in within our profession, it's uh, you always work toward a deadline. So it's nice to at least always include those 24 hours once in every production. I, I agree. A breather is good in those scenarios. That is a good end note. And we'll, we'll let that be the last comment of the evening. Thank you so much to the panel.